Hi, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Mile End podcast. Um, I'm delighted this week to be joined by Anne Longfield, CBE. Anne was the Children's Commissioner for England from March 2015 until February 2021. Um, and her role as Children's Commissioner was to bring about long-term change and improvements for all children, in particular the most vulnerable children in care. Anne is a long-standing and passionate champion for children with over 30 years of experience developing, influencing and shaping the national policy agenda for children and families. And she spent many years campaigning for better childcare, as well as working in the former Prime Minister Tony Blair strategy unit, devising the Sure Start Children's Centre programme. Prior to her appointment as Children's Commissioner, Anne was Chief Executive of the Charity for Children. So our podcast is going to look at three sets of issues with Anne. We're going to start by talking about Anne's experience as Children's Commissioner before the pandemic. We're then going to move on and talk about Anne's experience as Commissioner during the pandemic, particularly given the way that children were affected by the closure of schools and by the effects of lockdowns on children's lives. And finally, we're going to, in the podcast, talk about Anne's latest project, which is the Commission on Young Lives. So let me start by welcoming you to the MEI podcast, Anne. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So let's start off then um, just by talking a bit about your experience as Children's Commissioner. Um, obviously, you'd had a long um, back, you'd had much experience working around the sector and you'd worked in the voluntary sector, you'd worked in different roles, you'd worked in the strategy unit in number 10. When you became Children's Commissioner, what were you trying to achieve um, in the role? What, what was your, what did you see as your purpose? So I had been, uh, this wasn't new to me. I had, as you say, been working on many of these issues for decades, in fact. Um, and But the, the role itself, the Children's Commissioner role, was still relatively new to this country. I was the only, the, the third uh, Children's Commissioner, the first had come into post in 2005. So it's still, you know, very much in its infancy. And for me, the role was really about working within the kind of statutory framework. I'd worked very much in the voluntary sector and a bit of time, as you say, um, in the uh, number 10 strategy unit. Um, but really, the vast majority of my time had been, you know, working in the voluntary sector, lobbying, making the case being able to respond really quickly often to issues that I'd found and being able to deliver real support, but not being able to really affect that kind of change that I knew was needed um, in, you know, the way that the public sector, the statutory um, sector worked. So for me, this was an opportunity to go not within government, because this was an independent role, it was appointed by government, but it is an independent role, and you're holding government to account, essentially, but to really be able to hold that system to account and, and really highlight the way that vulnerable children often fell outside this system. You know, we, we spend a lot of money, you know, and a lot of people like me argue that it should be more a lot of the time, but we do spend a lot of money on services for children in the round, including schools. But actually, there's one group of children that consistently fall out and don't get their kind of fair share. And I really wanted to look at, you know, how we could, how I could make that change. So I set about really um, uh, working with a small group of people that you have in your office, really being able to get these issues into the public domain. And I remember early on, 
you know, you didn't really get that many articles or, you know, uh, uh, mainstream media um, uh, uh, features around vulnerable children. You know, we people talked about um, uh, kids in gangs and things like that when there were dreadful headlines. But actually, there wasn't much beyond that. And especially for, for kids in care or kids that were falling out of school. And me and the office set set about really putting that to rights. You have a particular power as Children's Commissioner, which is about about being able to command and garner data from the public sector and then analyse that data. And there's heaps of stuff that, you know, of data that exists, but there's little of it that's analysed in a kind of very joined up way. And I was able to do that. And so systematically work way through the way that kids as they grow up, just fall out more and more. You know, they start school behind the most vulnerable kids. They're more likely then to be excluded from school. They're more likely to need a social worker. They're less likely to succeed when exams come about. They're more likely to have uh, be unemployed. You know, they're less likely to be able to have the kind of fulfilled life that we would all want. And at every point of that, there seemed to be this kind of astonishment that it happens. But, you know, it doesn't take long to work out that actually... It's there to see where it happens. I've got to say, you know, those years were also years of, you know, huge changes, if you like, within government. There were four different administrations. There were three general elections, four administrations during those six years. There was Brexit. So it was often a time where it was difficult to get airspace about, well, domestic issues first and foremost, but also children's issues, because they're so often seen as a kind of soft option for discussion. And what I wanted to do was really put the debate about children centre stage and get it to be, you know, to the point where people acknowledge that this was important, not only in terms of, you know, individuals' well-being and life chances, but actually, if you wanted to get down to it in economic terms, really, this was important for the country as a whole, something which I was always frustrated that the Treasury never really seemed to be able to grasp. You know, if you actually invest in some of these kids early on, then actually it builds the prospects and um, the wealth of the country. It's not just a downward spiral. It's not just spending and you don't get anything back. This is about really increasing the size of the pie and the wealth of the country overall. And that's, I still believe, is a, a task to be done. So you mentioned, um, obviously, um, cuts in spending, and you became Children's Commissioner halfway through the 2010s, which I think, obviously, we'll look back on as being a, a decade of austerity, given the um, severity of cuts in public expenditure, and the shrinking of some key parts of the welfare state. Just on that point, and what's your assessment in terms of the impact of the austerity decade on children and on young people's services. I mean, we read a lot about austerity. What do you see in terms of the effects that it's had? What does the evidence tell us about what impact austerity has had on on children and our young people? Well, I think the first thing to say, it's real. Um, And there has been a huge cut in services, about 70% of the um, budget for early intervention, you know, for that support, for speech and language, for help for families, that has reduced... Um, about 70% over the last decade. I came into that post in the last 
uh, few weeks of um, uh, the previous government went straight into the 2010 government. And then there was just that churn of governments beyond there. And at each of those stages, the cuts deepened um, as local authorities were put under more and more pressure. So, for instance, something like Sure Start Children's Centres, which I'd worked on um, so closely before, saw about a 70% cut in their budget. And what I think, what that does is, you know, it meant that the the the, the service was was spread much more thinly. The hours of operation are down to kind of you know one or two days a week. You know, the ambition was that they'd be there and they'd be open doors and they'd be part of what you'd expect in your local community. They become, um, in some ways, kind of you know just there for reference points, there for meetings, and in some cases, quite hollowed out. Now that's something which you know for me is a tragedy and something which needs to be. Uh, rebuilt. There's also some indication from work from pro bono economics that actually the largest cuts were in the poorest areas. So a double whammy for those families who relied on those services. And of course, what that means for children is that there's less help available for children before crisis hits. And you've had an increase in spending often by local authorities, but it goes on crisis, which has now become more and more expensive. So you get local authorities spending money but on fewer and fewer children and more and more in crisis, which, you know, you see reports about children's social care where eye-watering amounts of money, you know, £10,000 a week for children, even £20,000 sometimes in, in very complex residential care settings. But actually, you know, if, that, if those issues had been dealt with five years ago, then that child would, wouldn't have had to have that level of intervention and that cost on the public purse wouldn't be there. I think there's what we're looking at potentially is now a group of children who grew up over the last 10 years without those services in place. And we're yet to see the difference that that makes. I think potentially you've got now teenagers have grown up without those levels of intervention before they went to school and during their primary school years. And, you know, my worry is that those are the children who are struggling with school and struggling with returning to school. They're school refusers. They are the ones that will be struggling with you know, domestic violence in the household and mental health problems that their their parents might be struggling with. And they are the ones who, for those who want to exploit kids, they will, they will be the ones that they will be able to see. They will be the ones that are looking for, you know, that sense of belonging and that sense of ownership in the local community. And I think it's really tough for them. I think that's what we're seeing coming through. And that's one of the things that uh, my new commission about the, the commission on young lives is 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 trying to investigate you know not only how do we identify these kids how do we understand what's happening happening and then what do we need to do to ensure that the kind of trajectory has, has, has turned on that but i mean simply as well you know we've got uh, we've got a society where there's increasing numbers of children living in poverty and we know that there's been concerns about pension and poverty for a long time rightly so uh, a huge amount was spent on pensioners to tackle poverty, but it hasn't yet been done for child poverty. And COVID and the pandemic has just accelerated some of that. And that is sitting there as a major, you know, social societal problem that isn't going to go away just because we ignore it. It's something there that I believe absolutely needs to be tackled as part of levelling up. I wanted to ask you about the politics of the spending cuts, because if you step back and look at 
the expenditure cuts across the period, it is very striking that, as you mentioned, um, if you look at spending on people of pensionable age or you look at spending on the NHS, although the spending settlements haven't necessarily been generous, there has been some protection. But for services and for benefits that affect children, young people and families, it seems as if those parts of the welfare state have been much more susceptible to cuts. And governments have almost been acting as if it doesn't matter to them politically. Why do you think that is? I mean, what is it about children's services, services for young people, services for families that seem to make them so politically vulnerable? And what perhaps can be done to try to make them more resilient? If I was being cynical, I'd say that children don't have a vote. Um, as simple as that Um, but of course their parents do and their grandparents do and all all, all the rest of their family Um, and but I think traditionally you know in this country we've fallen in between how different states have dealt with it if we look at if you look at kind of southern Europe people love children you know children are kind of much revered and um, the the family around the child is 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 very much seen as a kind of really important precious um, construct you go to northern uh, Europe, you've got a much greater kind of state involvement there, where for the last 40, 50 years, you've had the development of, you know, a a pedagogically based system of welfare and uh, education, and children have really taken the centre stage there. So, you know, children at the forefront of what people see as as being precious about society. And I think, you know, in in the UK, we just haven't gone either way, really. We've, We've kind of moved on from the fact that, you know, children are kind of, you know, you have them, you look after them sort of thing, or it should be seen but not heard. But we haven't really constructed what could be that kind of, you know, absolutely kind of uh, centre stage between those two approaches. But that hasn't yet taken hold. And the makings of that did come into place with the development of, you know, uh, support for families and support around well-being and sure start and the like. But those roots weren't deep enough to keep it going when they were hit by that level of uh, reduction of budget. So it, it's seen as being, uh, still be seen as being a, somewhat of a private matter, somewhat a soft option. But there is just something which is really basic about how the Treasury actually looks at spending, which is all around baselines now and all around the cost benefit analysis in a very short period of time. And and I actually think that does create a kind of institutional bias in the Treasury against children because of course, you know, you, you have to spend public money wisely, but just looking at it in a traditional way in terms of deciding how you spend money, just leave children high, you know, high and dry because actually they haven't run into those problems yet. The formula for looking at how you save money, actually understanding that if it works, the problems won't happen in the end, is quite, is, is quite different. And I don't think people have taken that step to do that. And the other thing, of course, is that government departments just don't work together. So the, one of the first things I realised when I stood into that role was that, you know, I was trying to talk about children in the round and I'd go to one department and they'd say, well, you know, the minister's really concerned about vulnerable children and vulnerability. And then they'd describe children in terms of being a patient or, you know, a pupil or, uh, you know, a a potential offender. And these are all kind of aspects of their lives, but not 
in any way understanding the interconnectivity about you know the 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 makeup of that child and the char- characteristics and their needs so there's a couple of structural things there which just make it really difficult for government to get a grip in my view that could be changed but it will take leadership and i don't think we've had that leadership since we had michael gove there as secretary of state you know there's been a lot of kind of trying to quieten things down after that period. And there just hasn't been that leadership centrally for children in the round. We have got levelling up now, which, you know, I am relatively, uh, uh, you know, excited about. But it does need to really put these vulnerable children, these marginalised children and their families at its heart as their test cases. If those people don't have confidence or see themselves as part of um, you know, that levelling up process, then it won't have worked. It is a huge opportunity, but also it needs to have the engine of government behind it. I also think that, you know, the fact that education uh, and children's well-being hasn't been at the heart of the agenda means that, you know, there's a role here for the opposition. They really have the opportunity to put education and children at the top of the agenda. Um, and again, you know, I'd be very happy with that. Again, just thinking about obviously the long term effect of austerity, I wanted to move on and talk about the effect of the pandemic, which has obviously had a dramatic impact on the lives of children and young people across the country. I mean, what's clear from what you're saying and so far is that obviously, in many ways, particularly um, vulnerable children went into the crisis around the COVID pandemic um, already in a vulnerable position because services have been cut back and the general um, position was that services were under strain. Um, in terms of the pandemic itself, what were the effects that you observed as Children's Commissioner, particularly for those children who were living in very vulnerable situations? It was absolutely huge and very swift as well. And I think the pandemic actually gave a lot of people reference points towards what living in a vulnerable situation means for kids. And, you know, we can all talk about it and, you know, people get a bit of that fatigue of of hearing some of these things in news bulletins. But actually in the pandemic, it was very clear that some people had hugely varying amount of assets to draw on in a crisis. There were many families who lived in, you know, very large houses. Um, Every child had a room with a desk. There was a big garden. There was, you know, massively fast Internet Um, And everyone had good tech at home and time and space and indeed parents working at home to be able to get on with their studies. There were others who um, were in really cramped conditions, no outside space. The parents weren't able to work at home. They needed to carry on working to bring the money in. Um, They didn't have the tech. They were sharing rooms. You know, I had cases told me where there were four siblings sharing a bed in a bedroom because the whole family was living in a one bedroom flat and the parents were trying to sleep during the day to be able to get a bit of sleep in. Kids who were trying to do their schoolwork on a shared broken mobile, you know, real difference there. And that brought things home in a very, very direct way. Vulnerable children were able to attend school, but only a few did. Um, And that was wrapped up in a whole range of reasons, including, you know, worries about health risks. But the fact of the matter was that, that most weren't. We know that um, domestic violence uh, rocketed during that time. Mental health problems really um, set in and also, you know, addiction too. So in those, you know, in those first weeks of lockdown, 
that was just a, a catastrophe for many children. And it became clear very quickly that, you know, closing schools had a devastating effect for many. You know, um, those on the margins of being vulnerable. Also, the impact on children's own mental health and, and well-being was real. So it's obvious for me that actually as soon as it was practically safe in any way, we should try and get children back into school because the school itself, of course, the education part was really important. But, you know, those were children who were going into school and actually school was a bit of a respite for them. You know, it was a place where there are other adults they could interact with, they could see their friends. Um, there were others that could pick up on things that were going wrong um, and and be able to refer them. And it was it was a problem all in in all areas of the country, but there were some areas of the country where that just went on over weeks and weeks with high levels of infection. So, I talked a lot about children in the north before and and, and during the pandemic, but actually the levels of infection there meant that children were spending more times out of school, and again compounding some of the huge disparities towards you know, children growing up on free school meals in London um, who are twice as likely to go to university and four times as likely to get good um, English and maths GCSEs at at 16 before the pandemic, falling back even more during that period of time. So it was hugely frustrating that schools didn't reopen as quickly as they could. There was a choice to be made over, you know, how we spend our amount of social interaction we felt we could do and keep it and keep infection rates down as well. And there was a moment where, you know, Primark opened, theme parks opened, pubs opened, even zoos opened, but schools stayed shut. And that for me was hugely dispiriting and frustrating at that point. Yeah, and you must have also felt in a way like a somewhat lonely voice because my recollection of that period is that quite understandably in many ways, medical experts and other government scientists were obviously recommending a very stringent lockdown. And it was almost as if talking about reopening schools and trying to prioritise children's needs um, was somehow going to threaten the well-being of the rest of the population because it was going to weaken the effect of the lockdown. So it must have taken a lot of um, courage and resilience on your part to be able to go out there and say, actually, we do need to think about children's well-being they need to be in school. This should be a priority. I honestly thought that's what's what what that was what I was for. You know, that was the test. If a country needs a children's commissioner, actually, it needs it at that point because others aren't going to argue that case. You know, the the pub chains weren't too happy at that point, and you know the unions had views too. But of course, the teaching unions they had their job to do and their responsibilities. And I was, of course, uh, trying to put forward the needs of children within that. There was huge crossover, obviously. For me, what was needed was this kind of what I called a nightingale moment. Look, I remember the moment I first heard about furloughing and the furlough scheme and being absolutely, you know, struck by how amazing that was I had a son I had a daughter-in-law that were both looking at not having any you know having work and income coming in at that point and both went on furlough so personally knew what that meant and that was amazing you know we saw the uh, Nightingale hospitals being built at speed and again just showed what you could what could be done with that level of commitment and I really felt that schools needed that same level of commitment and investment, whatever it took. You know, if that meant that we had to take over other public buildings next to schools so that we could distance children and make it safer for everyone, so be it. They did that in some areas of of Europe. If that meant we had to look at new levels of ventilation and the like, so be it. 
But at the end of the day, if it had to come down to, if it's schools or if it's pubs, then, you know, my feeling was that schools have to be the ones that you prioritise and schools have to be the last one to close and the first one to open. And we kind of got there in the end with the last to close, the first to open, but the Nightingale moment never came. So actually, we haven't yet had the scale of commitment to, um, you know, recovery that I think is needed. It's still waiting for that lockdown moment. There was a particular kind of um, moment one weekend, I think in late May or June, where I just had to, you know, say, stop squabbling here. This isn't kind of, you know, this isn't a debating issue. We're the adults. We have to prioritise children in this because actually, you know, the impact of this on children for not only years to come, but decades to come is going to be devastating if we don't. I wanted to ask you about the, the Build Back Better agenda in education, because, I mean, as you know better than anyone, the government has come under significant criticism for a perceived lack of commitment, particularly in terms of education spending on catch up lessons and programmes and so on. And the resignation of the individual, Kevin Collins, who was asked by the government to put a programme together. Where are we on that now? I mean, obviously, the government has recently published a spending review I think there's a sense that the issue has slightly slipped off the agenda again. What's your feeling on where the government is in terms of, you know, really putting in place a robust programme to try to tackle the long-term effects of COVID and also overcome the scarring effects on children and young people, particularly those from really disadvantaged backgrounds? Well, I was delighted when Kevin Collins was appointed as the Education Recovery Commissioner because, um, you know, he was well-known as a very uh, competent and uh, much-respected individual, really spanned across um, the the teaching sector over many years. I think what he put forward in terms of, um, you know, his, his recommendations were for about £15 billion worth of commitment over a number of years. I thought that was the right scale to get children back on their feet, which was about, you know, education recovery, but also about their wider well-being and their mental health support. I also thought it was the right scale to be able to really get to a different place. So building back better really meant fairer as well, because, you know, at the moment, the education system means that at least 20% of kids leave education without the basic qualifications, you know, without the qualifications they need to be able to go into most professions, even some apprenticeships. And that just seems quite not only wasteful for those individuals, but, you know, quite a careless thing to do. You know, if we were looking at any kind of process that was for any any particular goods, if you were going to really look at 20%, wastage, that would seem hugely inefficient. So I think that there was something here which there was a potential to rebuild and also reset with those children. That has been at the moment, I believe, lost. There may be, you know, concerns about that. There may be the will to try to do something more long term about that. But I think there's an immediacy about that that could have been addressed as part of that building back. Governments, I think, committed about five billion in total, you know, good. There's an emphasis on tutoring. And of course, if you look at the slightly more narrow outcomes in terms of education, that shows that um, children do benefit from that in terms of being able to recover in educational terms. There's questions over, you know, which kids get that and are the most vulnerable kids getting that. Again, there's a 
people will want that to happen, but whether it does in practice. But it doesn't really give that boost that could have been at the heart of leveling up. And I, you know, I'm an optimist. So I would say that leveling up still has the potential to put them there to really put children, um, children at the heart of that. And we know how to do it. You know, you help children get ahead before school. You notice when there's speech and language difficulties. You you notice when this thing's going on at home. You give them the support they need to be able to develop before they get to school. You give them a, a booster just before they get to school, which is like a springboard. And then you work with them throughout their primary school and then into secondary school. There is something about children getting lost sometimes in the secondary system because it's not very personalized. You, you know, you, you, you correct for that. There are ways of doing it. And I think that a huge shock, which the pandemic was and crisis in the country was one of those moments where actually seeing the dangers of and the vulnerabilities of those children, there was not only the moral kind of opportunity to do it, there was also the moral imperative to do it. And economic imperative to do it with it as well and we haven't yet seen that so um since you've stood down from your role as children's commissioner you've embarked on a new project which is the launch of the commission on young lives i think in partnership with the oasis trust can you tell us a little bit about the purpose of the commission and what you're hoping to achieve it's a small team it's a small team of five working on it um as you say um hosted and backed by the oasis trust um who've been doing fantastic work in communities for decades there was a group of children, of all the children, um, I kind of spent time um, shining light on, evidencing need, making the case. There was a group of children that I felt were the most children at risk who was furthest away from having a kind of solution of support needed. And they were the teenagers, the vulnerable teenagers who were falling out of school, who were being exploited, who were getting into um, dangerous situations with gangs and county lines, and some of whom were ending up either in the criminal justice system or um, in high-level complex you know, welfare and mental health support. Um, and for each of those um, situations, you know, the, 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 the commentary was often, well, these are you know, very complex teenagers. They have high complex needs. You know, even I heard people saying, you know, I think that it's very difficult to help children like that or it's too late. And I just couldn't accept that any of that was the case. And if you talk to any of those children or their families about, you know, how this came about, um, what their difficulties are, you can track that back to the moments where we could have helped. We could have helped when they went into school. We could have helped when suddenly um, they were excluded from school. We could have helped when we first found that mobile phone in their room. But often children fall into especially the criminal justice system, and that's the first time they've been picked up. So I really wanted to put, again, that effort into, over this period of a year, looking really in huge focus at what the experience of these children are, what are the dangers, what are the characteristics of their children, and essentially how do you actually devise a national system and a local system that can not only identify and protect them, but that can actually give them the boosters they need. There's growing numbers of young people that are going into care. Now a quarter of all the children who are in care are 16 and 17-year-olds. A lot of those would be able to have the kind of protection they need and the support they need before care, if it was there. A lot of those children are out of sight. 
until they hit the headlines. I really wanted to be able to do a, you know, a, a really intensive uh, and detailed study into not only, you know, what the problem was, but very much what the solution should be and could be. So it's not about just retelling that problem. It is really working with agencies, um, working with local areas and working with young people and their families themselves to look at what could actually make the difference. And, you know, the prime minister has said again quite recently that, you know, he wants to bite the head off county lines. Well, you know, so do I. And actually what we're going to be putting forward over the coming months on a very regular basis is solutions of how that can be done. But again, it needs the focus, the commitment, the clear kind of lead, and it will need change for these kids because at the moment they just are not getting the visibility and they're the ones who are struggling to be able to make their way through the teenage years and all the pressures that we know they have in their lives. In policy terms, I mean, we talked already about the impact of austerity and clearly part of the issue is about resources. But it seems from your analysis so far through the commission that what you're also in a sense, discussing is um, how to focus resources and how to prioritise. And I think you've also made this point before about prevention, that the problem is that many young people get into a position of crisis because preventative services are not effective enough. What are the ways in which we can make public services, services for children and young people, more effective in terms of prevention? The national framework is important. You know, this isn't about government doing all of this themselves, but the framework is important. When there was, um, you know, a a spate of horrible headlines around children uh, and stabbings and violence a couple of years ago, we counted there were 11 different interventions from different government departments after that. They all had a pot of money with them, probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 million pounds. They were all quite kind of, you know, isolationists and small scale, and none of them really joined up at all. If that had been part of a joined up program across government that could have strategic clout, it would have made much, much more of an impact. So the, the, the national framework is important across government to get a cross government approach. It also needs resetting in terms of, in my view, in terms of the relationship between national frameworks and also what happens locally. There's been this big move away from kind of national strategies over the last 10 years um, and move towards kind of localism and local decisions and responsibility. Fine, you know, I believe that decisions need to be made locally, but they do need to be made within a a framework, in my view, uh, and accountability back. Uh, to a to a national framework. So there's something there about resetting that. There's resetting in terms of spend, which has been spent um, now much, much more on crisis. So the thresholds are very high, um, but that means most children don't get help. That's a vicious circle, which is just completely unsustainable. So that needs resetting back towards prevention and early intervention. Um, and I do think actually some bridging funds will need to be there to help that happen because you know the statutory responsibilities for for the high um high needs children will still carry on they just can't be abandoned and a mechanism for joined up activity locally now we've mentioned short start quite a few times along the way and we have a government now that is looking at, at family hubs which are very similar but carrying on for older children you know that was all a mechanism about bringing support together in communities around you know real people's lives and responding to real people's lives but what I can see is that has services have 
have less and less money. They've kind of all gone back into their core business and they've all shrunk back into their own kind of distinct areas of operation. I mean, I suppose an exception to that would be schools which during the pandemic had to do so much frontline work with vulnerable kids. You know, they've actually grown, I think, in terms of some of their areas of activity, but all others have shrunk back. So that what that means is you have to, you know, the police can't intervene until, you know, something bad has happened. Social services won't intervene. They don't have the capacity to do that until it gets to crisis. You know, on each of those fronts, the capacity to be able to notice when something is going wrong early and intervene just isn't there. So it's almost like the child is in the middle of a a, a kind of stream of islands, but without anyone around them. And the kind of icing on the cake for that child being alone is that the very workers that are designed to work with young people, the youth workers, have also suffered huge cuts over the last 10 years. So there aren't the individuals there to work with those children. So children are isolated by themselves. And of course, the most vulnerable of those will be the ones that those that wish to exploit them can pick on. So I think it's a whole cell kind of reset um, on how services work earlier around individuals, around that preventative focus. Um, But that will need, in my view, to be driven by, um, you know, a much higher commitment from government, a much clearer framework from government, and ultimately, um, you know, a much larger priority for uh, vulnerable children within government. I think they do need a national strategy for vulnerable children. I've said that throughout. That's what Many other countries have have, have had and continue to have, and many other countries put children at the forefront. We haven't, and it's something that I think needs to change. I wanted to also just touch on perhaps a more controversial issue, which is policing and and trust in the police. In terms of the work you've done so far, and obviously your experience as Children's Commissioner and now um, your experience with this commission, um, what do you see as being the particular issues around policing? How do we rebuild trust between young people and the police? What are the issues that we need to get a hold of here? What are the questions that perhaps aren't being asked? And how can we help the police to, you know, to try to rebuild that trust, which it seems, you know, has been significantly weakened? Actually, in the round, one of the things that um, I have recommended in the past and still, you know, very um, interested to look at in terms of, you know, the older teenagers is um, how you can get that kind of positive input from having um, police more connected to school in terms of community safety. You know, not sitting in the back room, you know, monitoring what's going on or, 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 or looking over kids in terms of what they're doing, but actually building strong relationships with that community and being with children. And I visited um, uh, Alternative Provision over in East London not long ago, and the kids there who had a lot going on in their lives, and several were very much on the edge of the criminal justice system, they welcomed uh, their relationship with the police within the school. They were able to really manage how that happened. So they felt they were able to go to that individual and talk about things that they were concerned about. Um, they were also clear that they wouldn't tell them everything. Um, but there was the, the makings of a decent relationship there. And I think that there, that has potential. I really I haven't given up, given up on that. I do think that's something that um, we need to see. You know, I also think that the police 
you know, have moved a lot, recognising much more trauma. So, you know, there was, um, I was taken by the police in Northern Ireland, um, I think really positively during lockdown, um, uh, followed a really trauma-informed trauma approach where when they saw a group of kids hanging around, they didn't go up to them saying, what, you do, what are you doing? They actually went up to them and said, are you okay? And that just makes all the difference. The move is towards looking at how you can have a much more trauma-informed, youth-aware policy on the ground, of course, that isn't what a lot of kids still see and experience. So there's there's a huge amount there that needs to change. And I still think there's something that's really important about having that community base, which can stand alongside kids and where relationships can start to really open up a dialogue, which hopefully will, will help both sides. I'm going to try to end on a note of optimism. Obviously, a lot of what we've talked about in this discussion has focused on, you know, the very real problems that, that our children and young people have faced in the most recent period, exacerbated by the pandemic, but obviously preceding it, as you've um, talked about so eloquently. If we look ahead a decade from now and we think about what, what could be done, you know, if we make the right changes to services, if we put the resources in place, if we put the catch-up programmes in place that you've talked about, if we strengthen the relationship between communities and the police... What would be your optimistic vision for children, young people? I mean, what kind of society would we be living in um, if we thought about, you know, in a sense, a good society for children and young people? What, what would it look like from your perspective? And I think that we can learn from these countries, you know, some of the Scandinavian countries that are 40, 50 years on. We can learn from that. Um, we can also reflect the kind of um, society which I think young people themselves want to see, you know, which is much more about kind of an inclusive society that is very much concerned around each other's well-being and, you know, wants to um, live alongside other generations, but also wants to be recognised as having, you know, a really vital role to play within the community too. So I think, you know, the levelling up agenda has the ability to be able to, if all of those things happened, which is quite a big if, but nonetheless, um, uh, really transform not only children's lives and young people's lives, but the wider society that we live in. And I think that means that, you know, for young people who are going to school in some parts of, you know, the, the north where there's entrenched problems and poverty, they can see, you know, they would be able to see a future where, their them and their own children wasn't limited by the fact that they're you know they would be unlikely to get decent jobs that they they despise for their dreams had to be put on hold because it just wasn't available in the places that they you know wanted to live alongside um, the family members that they wanted to live uh, live near so there is a huge capacity there to be able to make a much fairer society that children and young people I think want to see. But going back to what, you know, I think parents' ambitions and aspirations would be, you know, as they enter into, you know, at the time of, of having a family. Look, at the moment, especially, in, you know, these areas of the country where those with money flock to, if you like, when um, when they're planning a family, they're sometimes called nappy valleys, you know, they're, they're where, um, you know, all the kind of services are around that group of families and the like. And they do that for a reason, because those are good places to grow up. Where if you're relying on public services and public housing, you just don't have those choices and those chances. So I would like to see the transformation of public spaces, public housing, um, and also the systems, the education system and the like that 
you know, we have within our means to do so, to really put a focus on what does it mean as to make this country a good place to grow up? What does it mean to a, a good place for families? And I think that is something, whatever generation you're in, is something which people know what that means and know how much how much good that would bring to people. But we have to make it happen. It's a choice and we have to make that choice. This was a podcast brought to you by the Mile End Institute at Queen Mary University of London. I'd like to thank our guest this week, Anne Longfield, the former Children's Commissioner for England and now Chair of the Commission on Young Lives. I'm Patrick Diamond, Director of the Mile End Institute. Thank you all so much for listening. Please do subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also find the Mile End Institute on social media. And if you sign up to the mailing list on our website, you'll also hear first about all of our future events.